But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We're grateful for the opportunity we have to gather here at Beth Ariel and to study your word. Uh, Your word is a light unto our path. Your word is life itself. And uh, your word, Father, helps us uh, in every possible way. Most importantly, uh, it is the mechanism by which the means by which we know you better. And uh, certainly the study of your word brings us into your presence in a unique way as well. So guide us uh, tonight. Help us all learn together as we seek to uh, decipher your word and understand it more fully than we might have before. So we turn all of this time over to you. And we pray that your spirit would lead and fill and enlighten and unfold your word to us. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, let's, uh, let's move on here. We've been talking about the law and, uh, and its significance, and we said, why study the law? It's part of God's word. Um, many of us are not sure how the law is supposed to relate to us as a unique connection to the Jewish people with, which, with whom we're connected. Um, we want to somehow understand its broader connection to the Messianic movement, and the big question is, what are we obligated to do? Um, we're not talking what about what are we free to do. We're free. We know that. Is there an obligation? And so we need to explore that because in many messianic circles, there is this sense of if we're not obligated to do so for justification, to be declared righteous before God, we are obligated to do so, or at least Jewish believers are, uh, for the sake of sanctification. And I would say no to both of those things, but there are those that believe differently. So we want to go through this to see how we get to the conclusion we're getting to. Uh, Two factors oftentimes contribute to our struggle in understanding the Mosaic Law, and that is we oftentimes hear individuals or ourselves tend to divide the law into its parts. You can divide the law into its parts to discuss. You cannot divide the law into its parts in order to regulate its obedience. So uh, there are those, and I just, someone sent me an article uh, by a Presbyterian pastor uh, who was arguing that because the Jewish people are no longer, are, because they are no longer a unique covenant people in the eyes of God, God is through with Israel as unique people of his, and now he is creating what we would refer to as the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, but God's program specifically for the Jewish people is no more. That's his point of view. That's his presupposition. He concludes, because God's program for Israel is no more, the ceremonial, which is uniquely to the Jewish people, observe certain uh, things in the temple or festivals, and the judicial, which had to do with the government of the Jewish people, Because the Jewish people are no more of significance in God's plan, the judicial and the ceremonial are are not obligatory upon the church. But because the moral law supersedes all other aspects of the law, they are still applicable to the church, even though there's no uniqueness with regard to the Jewish nation. Everybody follow me? So I'm... This is one of the reasons, that's an illustration of why, we, uh, it, why it is a fallacy to divide the law into parts. People who do that do that because it's convenient. It's a way of keeping the moral 
laws, quote-unquote, applicable without the ceremony and the judicial. Just set Israel aside. Ceremonial and judicial is unique to Israel in the land with regard to God's plans and purposes for Israel. If those plans and purposes are no more, and now God is working only over here in what is called the church, then you can argue that the moral aspects of the law continue, and those are the things we are responsible to continue to obey. Um, I don't believe that, but what I understand is that we divide the law into these parts only so as to talk about them, not because they are, um, that's how the law, not because that is how the law is made up. The law is one entity. We read in the Bible the Mosaic law, not the Mosaic laws, Uh, even though the Mosaic law is made up of laws. (laughs) It is one entity, and that's why uh, Yaakov James says in chapter 2, verse 10, if we keep all the law but fail in one respect, we're guilty of its entirety. And so what Paul and others are going to say is that that being the case, the law then becomes a judge for us. And it is through the law, Paul uses the word dia, through, not by the law, although most English translations use the word by, but it is through the law that God will bring judgment on the Jewish people. So he's in Romans, just very quickly, Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, he reveals everyone's a sinner. But we're sinners for different reasons. The Gentiles are sinners because they don't live up to their conscience. They know what's right, they know what's wrong, but they don't do what's right, and they do do what's wrong, and so therefore they will be found to be sinners. He says in Romans 2 and 3 or so, Romans 2, second part, that the Jewish people stand guilty before God because they have the law, but they don't do what's there. So therefore, God will judge Israel through the law, and it will then be a, the standard by which we will be found to have fallen short of the glory of God. In that respect, the law becomes our judge. Now, that doesn't mean the law is bad. It's just what it is. In fact, I was thinking about this today. Paul writes, the law is holy, just, and good, Romans chapter 7. So we're not deprecating the law, and I don't mean to deprecate the law as I'm teaching about the law. I'm trying to put it into perspective, and sometimes in an attempt to be more clear, you focus on certain aspects that the Scriptures teach about the law, but that's not the only thing it teaches about the law. But it does teach the law is holy, just, and good. Nevertheless, its service to us is not for a good result because we are sinners. Not because the law is at fault, but because we are at fault. And so the law serves a purpose that it was created to serve, and that was to make known our sin. But here's the parallel that came to mind. If we put ourselves in the Garden of Eden, and we looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good, was it not? God created it. After every day of creation, he says, and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good. But it served to bring about a bad end. 
Was it because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was at fault? No, it did its job. What was at fault was Adam and Eve for partaking of the fruit when they were told not to. The tree did its job. It served to be the testing ground. So we don't look at the tree and say, what a terrible tree that was. The fruit did not somehow magically convey sin to Adam and Eve. The fruit didn't do anything. It was simply a test. It's sort of like a parent that says, don't put your hand in the cookie jar. It eats the cookie jar. It, the, the child eats the cookie jar instead of the cookie. No, eats the cookie, <laughs> eats the cookie and gets punished. The cookie was not the cause of the punishment, right? The cause of the punishment was the disobedience. And through the cookie that was eaten, the parent brings punishment of whatever kind upon the child. The cookie did its job. It served to test the child's responsiveness to the parent. In the same way, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does its job. It's there as a testing ground. We failed, not because the tree was bad, the tree did something wrong, it's because we did something wrong. And when we did something wrong, the tree stands as the means through which God will judge us. You did eat of that fruit. You know, the, that apple, by the way, it was John Milton in Paradise Lost that first suggested the, the fruit was an apple. We don't know what it was. But that fruit, the Lord looks at the tree and he says, I know the hairs on your head. I know how many pieces of fruit were up there. And there's some one missing. The tree, he judges him through the tree because the fruit is missing and finds him to be a sinner. The law is like that. It is good. It's creating the image of God, if you, if you want to say. Maybe that's too far. But Moses is given the Ten Commandments, symbolizing, signifying the entirety of the law, written by the hand of God, the finger of God. And here it stands. Our problem, or the Jewish people's problem, is because we're sinners, we don't obey it. But it did its job. It set the standard. It did more than just set the standard, reveal something of the holiness of God. It becomes the ground for our testing of our allegiance to the Father or to the Lord. And by our failure, he's going to look at the commandments and says, did you, did you love your neighbor? You didn't make that commandment. Through the law, judgment hits, and we're found to be guilty. That's what I understand the law, one of the things the law does. Its primary purpose, in fact. And the book of Galatians points this out over and over again. We are free of that in our Messiah, which means we're free to do, and where we don't do, we're not judged. We're free to do a lot, or we're free to do a little, or free to do none. We're free in Messiah because we've entered a new phase in God's redemptive plan. We are under the new covenant in which the law has been written on our heart, and he's given us a new heart. And there, that new heart reflects the moral standards of God in a way in which uh, we otherwise would not be able to uh, um, reflect it. So, back to this issue. By dividing the law into its parts, we can do, have it do anything we want. And so that's what this particular pastor and he has a very great, good article. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of good things in there. 
But his presupposition of Israel being set aside gives him permission to speak about when Messiah says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he fulfills the ceremonial and judicial, and he manifests the fulfillment of the moral, but not in the same senses. Senses, And so what he does with the ceremonial and judicial, he brings them to a point of completion so that they're not uh, incumbent upon us. But in his opinion, the moral law still is. Now, it's important to realize God is a, God of, uh, is a moral God. And so he expects that we live in a manner that's consistent with his character, whether laws are given or not. And that's why I said Cain was wrong for killing his brother, even though there's no record of a law given that says thou shalt not kill. Because it's contrary to the very character and nature of God, and they had to know something about that. And so they violated God's moral character, moral standard, but there was no law out there like the, the law is given uh, to Moses. Similarly, uh, there's a, uh, uh, we don't have a written law like Moses had given to the people, but now written on our hearts is by means of God's spirit, we begin to manifest the character and qualities of the Lord as well. Okay, so let's move on here or else we'll stay here for the next 20 years. So, um, so in my opinion, believers are free. Oh, excuse me. So this is what I was just explaining. Some say believers are free of the ceremonial and judicial, but obligated to obey the moral. Though the ceremonial and judicial can't be obeyed fully, they still ought to be obeyed in some fashion. That's how some people understand the law. I think it's a, it grows out of dividing the law into its parts. Then there's the fallacy of elevating some commandments in the Mosaic law over and above others. So you have this notion that the Ten Commandments are, that's what is uh, to reflect our, our obedience to God. We have to obey the Ten Commandments. It's interesting that in the New Testament, nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated but the commandment regarding the Sabbath is not. You don't find a commandment uh, restated by Paul. All the other ones are, but not that one. So just an interesting facet to take note of. But in light of the fact that there are some who say we're to obey uh, the Ten Commandments, the ninth one isn't even reiterated. So we'll come back to this. But, um, so we have to be careful not to elevate some over the other. So why is the law important? Well, it was important to Israel because it corrected apostasy, which they fell prey to when they were in the land of Egypt. It served to, uh, to wield Israel into a nation, no longer just a tribe of family, a family of tribes that have come together. And it, according to Deuteronomy 4, it would make the Israel famous. Now, there are other important qualities of the, of the law, and we'll see them, but I wanted to just say, the law is a body, what it served apart from um, serving to change or transform or attempt to transform, maybe we should say, the character of Israel. It had these aspects to it that ought not to be minimized. And then we were talking about the relationship of law to grace. Somewhere in here is where we got side-railed. Side but uh, first of all, what I'm trying to illustrate is that there is grace in law as there is law in grace, right? The, law, the Lord says, I give you a new commandment, you know, that you love one another. So it's manifested in grace. 
Uh, I'm not advocating, when I say that we're no longer under the law and things of that sort, I'm not advocating what is referred to as antinomianism, anti-against-namas law. Antinomianism is the idea that we, are, we have no laws, and therefore we can live any way we want. I'm not advocating that. And that came up in, in discussion and dialogue. If there's no laws, what you're telling us is we could go out, live like the devil, and then claim that we're okay with God because we're saved by grace, not by law. Paul refutes that in Romans 6 and 7. Right? It's his whole point for writing those chapters. Should I sin that grace may abound? He says, no. Why? Because I've died to the law, when, or I've died to sin. When we accept Yeshua into our lives, a number of things happen. We think of it as simply, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm made right with God. And that is true. But there are other things that are going on we don't think about so much. And that is that we are also rendered dead to sin. That now, And we have this instinctive feeling or sense that now that I've given my life to the Lord, I've acknowledged my need for Him, I may not know fully what it means to be redeemed, I may not know fully what it means to have repented of my sin. All I know is, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness, help me out here, Lord, and forgive me. And that's about the extent of it. We don't even realize the extent of how sinful we are. There are, there are many things that God has forgiven us for. You and I have forgotten long ago. There are things that I was forgiven for this morning. I don't even remember. You know, I mean, we're, we are that out of touch uh, with the things of God. Fortunately, the grace of God is greater than us and is greater than all of that. But one of the things that happened when we invited the Lord into our lives is we died to sin. As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, as we mature in Him, we become, among other things, much more conscious of that reality. And as we become conscious of that reality, we then realize that there are things we shouldn't, ought not, and in many respects can't do. We've all experienced that. We've been with friends that have done, we've done things with. We don't think about it so much. And inside, something goes off and it says, I really shouldn't, I can't, I'd really like to, but that's part of that mechanism that's been recharged and is being retuned. Our spirit is being made alive unto God. So I'm not advocating antinomianism when I say we're free of the law. What I'm talking about is we're free of the Mosaic's law condemnation of us. We're free of the Mosaic law as a code by which we are to live and to reflect our faith. If we lived prior to the death, burial, resurrection of Yeshua, totally different story. Life in conjunction with the Mosaic law would have been a life we would have lived. Because that was the covenant that was operating at the time. And thus we would have been compliant with it to the best of our ability. Where we failed, we would have looked to the sacrifices to temporarily cover our sin. And we would have lived in that sphere, as it were. But now that the redemptive work of Messiah has been completed, we enter into a new covenantal arrangement. And that new covenantal arrangement does not... Uh, put a requirement upon us with regard to how we must live except with regard to these moral qualities that we've been talking about. So 
when I say we're no longer under the law, that's what I'm making reference to. We're not under the law in a number of respects, but certainly not under the law in the sense that that must become our lifestyle. In, if it was before, yeah, that's what one would, how one would reflect their faith. So let me step back a moment, and let me just say something here. This is, and if we can remember this, this is very helpful. No matter what era of history, talking about the Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation and beyond, no matter what era of history, we are always saved by God's grace. That never changes. Abraham was saved by God's grace. Abraham, uh, Moses was saved by God. We're always saved by grace. In every age, no matter what period of time, we're always saved by God's grace through faith. So faith is the, and the term that's used, through, means it's the instrumental means by which we are saved. Faith doesn't save us. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the thing that unleashes God's grace to work in our behalf. Now, there's difference of opinion. What precedes what? You know, and that's the distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism, Reformed theology and dispensational theology. If you, uh, the question is, do I believe because I'm able to, or is it because God has enabled me to? And that's one we cannot resolve uh, this side of heaven uh, because the scripture doesn't do that for us. But it says that we are saved by God's grace every age, It is always through faith. And the object of our faith is always the same. It is God. He's the object of our faith. That's what our faith is in. It is in him and what he's done for us. What changes is the content of our faith and how our faith is exercised. So, when Abraham was saved by grace through faith, faith in God, what he was expected to have faith in was God's promise that he would multiply his seed as the stars in heaven. So, Genesis 15, verse 6, which is one of Paul's major verses, is that it says that when God said that to Abraham, it says of Abraham, And he believed God, and God credited it to him for righteousness. That's the point at which, I guess we could say, Abraham really experiences salvation. Now, maybe before God speaks to him, Genesis 12. But here in 15.6, he's to put his faith in God's promise to multiply his seed. He does so, and God says, and it was reckoned unto him or counted unto him, as righteousness. Everybody with me? Now, today, and then as we go through time, the law is now given. The object of our faith, maybe I'm using these terms wrong, though in God, the, the specifics in which our faith is expressed changes. For Moses and the Israelites now, it is to live, um, in the case of Abraham, he was to place his trust in that promise. In the case of Moses and the others, they were to place their faith in the observance of the law, including the offering of sacrifices where, uh, where, where they were deficient, 
and that indicated their trust in God. Still following? With the, with the coming of John the Baptist, people reflected their faith by submitting themselves to John's baptism, believing that indeed the kingdom of heaven was at hand. With the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, now the object of our faith or the, the focus of our faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, we're always saved by grace. It's always through faith. But the the thing that we're placing our faith in, the thing that God is expecting us to respond to, changes. And it looks forward to things or it looks back to things. But it changes. Abraham didn't see the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, but he did see the promises. So similarly, when, we, when I talk about the law, if we were living during the time in which the law as a covenant was operating, we would have complied with it to the best of our ability, including the sacrifices, because that was what God was expecting of those who were faithful. But now that a new covenant has been inaugurated called the new covenant, what it is that we are to manifest changes, and it no longer is the Mosaic law, but simple faith in the death, burial, resurrection of Yeshua. Okay, enough said so we can move forward. So number one... I said that Israel didn't deserve to receive the law. The law was a gift from God, according to Deuteronomy 8. The law did not annul any features of the Abrahamic covenant. We talked at great length about the significance of the Abrahamic covenant and its parts, so we're not going to bother with that uh, tonight. And the law is contrasted with God's grace in different parts. So I then wanted to take those passages. And I was suggesting, number one, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, we have like this ascending ladder, uh, as it were. That's sort of one way to look at it. It's not the only way, but it is one way to look at it. And as John writes about Messiah and his coming, when we look at these verses, we could say, first of all, God is invisible. And so the question is, how does one see the invisible God? It says in Hebrews, Moses saw... He who is invisible is a very funny expression because you can't see that which is not visible, right? That's what invisible means, not visible. So how do you see what's not visible? You know, we use sort of like, uh, and by the way, this is interesting in theology because when we talk about the character and nature of God, we more often than not talk about him in negative terms. That's why the theologians call it in Latin via negativa, something like that, the way of the negative. So we say God is infinite which means God is not finite, you know? What does it mean to be infinite? We don't know how to, you don't, we don't know how to say that. You know, you could say with begin, no beginning, no end, okay. What does that mean? But we still said no beginning, no end. Still a negative way to speak about this particular character of God. We speak about God as being immutable, not changing. So um, it's a funny phrase when it says of Moses that he saw him he, uh, who was invisible. And therefore, he in the fullness of his glory cannot be seen, you know. Uh, but the second person, the tri triune God, takes on human form and in other contexts takes on angelic form in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, in my opinion, and he makes himself visible. But 
unless he does something like that, we can't see him. And uh, so in verse 18, uh, John writes that about the invisibility of the nature of God. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he's talking about Messiah, has made him known. So how does he make himself known? And John seems to reveal a number of aspects in which the invisible God is made known to us. In verse 16 and 17, uh, he says that from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Yeshua, the Messiah. I do not believe the verse means to convey a hard-nosed sort of contrast. I talked a little bit about that. And by the way, it's very interesting that the, that the conflict erupted in this context because I was trying to show some of the positive things about the law before we look at some of the negative things that the scriptures write about the law. Um, I just couldn't get there uh, in order to you know, clarify. But I'm trying to say something good here. And that is that while many say, read the passage, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Yeshua, uh, many try to look at that as a statement that deprecates the law, speaks of the law in a negative way. But that's not what he's doing. He's just showing distinctions between the law. Now, I do believe that Messiah is superior to the law, not just better than, he's superior. The writer to the Hebrews tells us this. But the point that John is making is that the law was helpful to us. It revealed something about God himself in a way that no other peoples had. You know, no, the law was given to Israel. What a privilege that the God of the universe would make himself known with such a specific aspects as revealed in the Mosaic law, and which reveals much about his character. So the invisible God begins to become more known through the Mosaic law. In verse 14, we're told that um, uh, we have seen his glory because he now dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. By the way, the Greek word here is sarks. It's a very uh, crass word. And so it's a, a word that is meant to denote Messiah became like us. Not similar to us. Not a glorified flesh but flesh and blood like you and I have with all of its frailties and all of its weaknesses. Now, he wasn't a sinner, but that sin doesn't have to do with our flesh. The, the sin has to do with our spirit and with some internal aspects, though it has an impact on the physical. But nevertheless, when he says that God became a human being, now the word who was with God, who was God, takes on human form just like you and I. So the invisible one is seen through Moses, through the law. And by John writing this, it seems to say that that is like the pinnacle, it, uh, the, the high point of how God is made known prior to the incarnation of Messiah. It's the law that really brings them to the fore. And in verse 14, the second person of the triunity takes on human form, and now we, have, now we can see God like we haven't been able to see him. Uh, not in all of his fullness, because he's limited himself. Philippians chapter 2 says that he sets aside his divine prerogatives, and he takes on human form so that he might suffer. 
and that he might die. There are glimpses of the fullness of his uh, divine nature, such on the Mount of the Transfiguration. He's transfigured in all of his glory. Uh, but it's few and far between. Most of the time we're seeing him not with regard to the fullness of his glory. When he returns, it says we will see him in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. So there will be a time we will see him most gloriously. But as such, we have not seen him yet. And then in verse 14, it's in Yeshua that we see God most fully. The word became flesh and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father. He's full of grace and truth. Grace and truth was seen in the law. But the fullness of grace and truth is seen through Yeshua. It's not contradictory. It's greater. It's just an increase. It's fuller. And so, verse 16, which we don't want to miss, um, where uh, we are told that from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And so, we have to receive this grace. Um, There's a sense in which we are all children of God, if we mean by that, created by God. But there's a sense in which we're not all children of God, but are given authority to become children of God. And that is by the fullness of his grace as the Lord uh, saves us and makes us his children and permits us to cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, so this is what we were looking at. So now, these are my points. While there is a contrast here, it's not a harsh contrast. Um, this is a review from last time. So it doesn't mean that the law of Moses is contrary to grace, but rather it means that the law, uh, and it doesn't mean that the law is not gracious or not truthful. Grace is found in the law, and truth is revealed through the law, but not to the extent that we see it uh, manifest in Messiah. So there's a contrast, but it's not harsh, and it's, it's not diametrically opposed. It's really an enlargement of what was seen uh, in the law. So this is some of the things we saw. So in chapter 3, verse 14, these are some of the places where God's grace and truth is seen in the law. And Yeshua makes reference to it. That's the point I'm making here. He's giving us examples where the grace and truth of God is revealed in the law. So that in John chapter 3, verse 14, He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, remember he put this, the snake was, the fiery snakes went throughout the, the uh, people of Israel and those that it, it bit, it was killing, it was a judgment. And then Moses takes a serpent, puts it up on a staff. By the way, that's the imagery we have with medicine today, right? You see the intertwined snakes. That's where it comes from. If you go up on Mount Nebo in Jordan, overlooking the Dead Sea, uh, overlooking the northern part of the Dead Sea. There's a monastery or a church up there, and uh, it's really dedicated to Moses. It has these, these passages on it. And then as you go off on its property, overlooking the Dead Sea, there's a big staff with the serpent entwined, remembering, you know, Moses' comment here, which is kind of cool. It's kind of nice. But in any case... Um, In verse 14, as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So when Moses took the serpent, put it up on a staff, anyone that looked at it would be healed of the bite or the strike, the poisonous that it got. Now, it wasn't the snake that healed them. And it wasn't their looking up to it that healed them. It was God's grace that healed them. God's grace healed them because they exercised faith in his healing grace. So you ask, how did they exercise faith in his healing grace? By looking up at the snake. That was what was expected of them to reveal, we're going to trust God. Others would have said, what is looking up at a snake? How is that going to help us? I'm not going to look at the snake. That's ridiculous. And so they're not healed. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But that's what God said. And it revealed a sense of respect for God's spokesperson, Moses. And it showed ultimate faith in God, who they were obeying. So the snake didn't do anything. It was simply like the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's like the law itself. We look to God, but, uh, or we look to the snake, or we refuse the apple, or we do the best we can with the law, you know, prior to the coming of Messiah. Um, and that it shows our faith in him and his grace is unleashed. The point here, though, is that by Messiah making reference to this, he's pointing out that this event um, recorded in the law speaks of grace and it speaks the truth. And so he's sort of like um, giving his support that the law reveals grace and truth. And as such, it points forward. It becomes almost like a sign or a symbol, a witness to the one who would come, who would be lifted up on the cross. If we look to him, we will find healing as well, a greater healing than what the Israelites experienced, a healing from our sin, which will save us or heal us for all of eternity. Again, someone might say, how can the death of another do that for us? We can answer that question to some degree, but we can't answer, answer it fully. Ultimately, it is we'll respond to God's command, as it were, by faith as we look to Messiahs lifted up in our midst and God saves us by his grace. So this is an example of how the law speaks of grace and truth when Moses lifted up the snake and Yeshua is giving us that uh, illustration. Another one is found in John chapter 5 in which Moses is in harmony with Yeshua and is writing about the truth of Yeshua and his grace. So in chapter 5, looking at verse 46, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me um, for or because he wrote about me. So what Yeshua is saying is that grace and truth came through Moses because he wrote about Messiah, who would be the um, mechanism or the means by which God's grace and truth would come to fruition. So he gives uh, um, agreement to Moses and the law as a manifestation of grace and truth. 
In chapter 6, we find that the manna in the wilderness was a gracious gift from God, but it wasn't the true bread that Yeshua is. It was not the reality of grace itself. It was a witness to the grace to come. It was a foretaste. The law as a whole is like that. These are just vignettes within the law that served as a witness to that one who would come. And so um, that, that's why I don't believe John 1.17 should be a harsh contrast. Grace and truth came through Yeshua, yes, and here are some examples of it. Um, or the law came through Moses, grace and truth comes through Yeshua. It came also through the law, but not to the degree which it, with, with which it comes through to us through Yeshua. Okay? So now the meaning of, of 117. So we come back to this passage in which he says, Great, uh, the law, um, a gra- <laughs> Moses gave us the law, but grace and truth came through Yeshua. So if there's not a harsh contrast, what is meant? I think what he means to say is the law was not the reality or the embodiment of grace and truth. I think that's what got me into trouble last time. The law was not the ultimate reality of it. Yeshua is. Yeshua alone is, I say. And the law was a witness to the grace and truth that would come through him. And thus Yeshua was the fulfillment, not the contradiction of the law of Moses.